we identify that if you build a sensor with your hands, you will love data. You know, the mathematics become your your uh, passion. Now that you collect this data, you want to plot it, you want to analyze it only by connecting the cable. So we did this project, and the survey from the high schoolers say connecting cable is making friends. Once you give them that 30 minutes on, on building the sensor, on the train, on the tramway, on the classroom, in 30 minutes they believe if they connect the cables together, they're going to be discovering something with those cables of the data that they, it becomes theirs. Hey, GeoTrekkers, welcome to episode 36 of the GeoTrek podcast. This is the second podcast in a three-part series recorded in the U.S. state of New Mexico, the land of enchantment. You're going to love this episode if you're passionate about field science, collecting environmental data, or have passion about hands-on education for students from middle and high school through college and graduate school. But before we get into this episode, we wanted to ask you to please subscribe to the GeoTrek podcast on your favorite podcast platform. Your subscription helps us track professional progress, helps us make new partnerships moving forward, and ensures many more podcast episodes in the future. Well, let's hop into it and come along with me on a journey to the land of enchantment. Last week, we explored the history of Santa Rosa, New Mexico, a small town in the eastern part of the state that saw a population explosion during the railroad era and was located right on iconic Route 66. We also discussed extreme droughts and floods in New Mexico's history, the most famous of which occurred in the late 1930s. Historian Dan Flores recounted how New Mexico quickly transitioned from extreme drought to extreme floods in 1937. This pattern of a quick transition from drought to flood happened again this year, although the floods were not as extreme. Nonetheless, New Mexico has been experiencing a complex set of natural hazards. For starters, the state is part of an ongoing extreme drought that has been impacting the southwestern U.S. for years. According to UCLA, this mega drought is the region's driest period in the last 1,200 years. How researchers go back so far in their analysis is a fascinating topic that we'll address in a future podcast episode. For this episode, the main point is that the drought is large, the drought is extreme, and unfortunately, it continues to get worse. The latest update from the U.S. Drought Monitor classifies 95% of the state in severe drought or worse, and 58% of the state in extreme drought or worse. The drought has tightened its grip on the region over the past year, as rain has been very scarce, as was feared with the ongoing La Nina weather pattern. The drought helped set the stage for one of the most severe wildfire seasons on record in New Mexico. According to the New York Times, by June 1st, more than 600,000 acres had burned, including more than 315,000 acres at the Hermit's Peak and Calf Canyon Fire, the largest fire in the modern history of the state. Spring fires are a bad sign in this region, as they sometimes can set the stage for a complex hazard scenario if the monsoon rains come hard and early. Monsoon rains come to this region commonly in the summer months, from mid-June through the end of September, when prevailing winds come from the south, drawing up moisture from the Pacific Ocean, Gulf of California, and Gulf of Mexico. Heavy monsoon rains falling on burnt mountainsides are a recipe for disaster, as the tree canopy and vegetation present in a vibrant forest are suddenly absent after a wildfire. As a result, more of the rain quickly runs off the landscape, exacerbating flooding downstream. Unfortunately, this year, monsoon rains did come hard and early, causing the National Weather Service to issue flood watches, especially for areas downstream from the massive burn scars on the spring wildfire season. 
I traveled to this region during the last week of June to document the flooding in person. I encountered an unusual setting, as I was greeted with rain upon my arrival, but signs all around pointed to the extensive drought and wildfires. When I say signs, I mean literal signs with road closures in the national forest where fires remained active, fire danger signs deployed in various locations, and other signs thanking firefighters for their service to save different communities. I was able to do some field reconnaissance in the Sangre de Cristo Mountains, northwest of the city of Las Vegas, New Mexico. I came across a stream flowing through a burn scar where I immediately recognized that the stream was wider with more extensive erosion in the section with burnt trees. Where trees remained unburned, the tree roots, grasses, and shrubs held the stream bank in place and prevented erosion. This excursion made me curious about this complex hazard. How well would this flooding be predicted because wildfires burn in erratic shapes? How do the flood models account for massive vegetation changes that recently happened on the mountainsides? Who's monitoring this fluid situation, pun intended, and how are they advancing the science in this area? My search led me to the Department of Civil, Construction, and Environmental Engineering at the University of New Mexico's main campus in Albuquerque. Assistant Professor Fernando Moreau leads an innovative team that is addressing these questions through data collection and field science. Dr. Moreau is director of the Smart Management of Infrastructure Laboratory, or SMILAB, at University of New Mexico. The SMILAB aims to develop the use of next-generation smart sensing technologies and strategies towards safer, cost-effective, resilient, and sustainable structures. He's also principal investigator for the National Science Foundation, or NSF-funded Civic Innovation Challenge. In this project, Native American Pueblo communities will build, design, and implement their own low-cost, efficient wireless intelligence sensors, or LUIS, networks. These networks will inform Pueblo communities of information to help prevent wildfires and provide critical information to early warning systems when wildfires and floods occur. In this project, a partnership has been established with a Native American Pueblo called Oke Owinge. Dr. Moreau invited me to participate in a project meeting that included faculty, staff, and students. I was blown away by the level of ownership the students had in this research, as well as their advanced level of creativity and innovation. After the meeting, Fernando Moreau and I recorded the following interview. I'm here at the University of New Mexico. A really exciting day. I got to see a lot of innovation and creation. I'm here with Dr. Fernando Moreau. Uh, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Glad to be here. Uh, thank you for inviting me to this meeting today. We're here at the university. We were talking on the phone quite a bit about the flooding. A lot of people think of New Mexico as a very arid state, and it is dry, but when the monsoon comes especially, a lot of flood risk goes up, and you and your students and, st and uh, faculty and staff have been creating and innovating flood sensors to go out there in the field, right? Correct. Yeah, the need is there. It was uh, by experience in the recent years, changes in the weather, changes in the environment, the, f the fires actually make the big difference. So that fire changes the the, the flooding, actually. So it's a post-wildfire post flooding. Fernando, can we talk a little bit about that? So New Mexico has some very large mountains, and unfortunately we've had some really big fire seasons. Like this season, this past spring, was I think the worst fire season collectively for the state. How does that impact when the monsoon floods come in the summertime? So it's not a new problem. It has happened in, in uh, 10 years ago. So we identified that this 
fires in the summer were followed by the rain in the fall and that fall flooding was a little different after the fire it happened in las conchas fire in new mexico we thought it was the worst and we were not expecting what this year happened that uh, made things uh, more severe we got fires two three months sooner in april in may and the monsoon season kicks in in june and now we're having a burnt area exposed to this monsoon almost daily rain that is running differently than we ever seen before. So we are aware of the problem. It's becoming um, unexpectedly really larger than we thought. And we are now uh, a little more prepared than before, thanks to the NSF and their, their uh, last year support of this project, which initially we thought it was going to be important. But this year, for one reason or another, it's becoming more um, the, the, the season where we're going to learn a lot. Fernando, you were saying not only is the flooding worse downstream from these fire areas, but also it's less predictable, right? Because we, yes. I guess, depend on our flood history. But when you take away the forest and the vegetation, now everything's different, right? Uh, yes, and flooding, uh, we are aware of being a, a natural disaster. We are prepared. We have in the research government, local authorities, companies as a priority. We have models. And with these models, we predict using the rain a flooding a flooding flow a flooding area that that we uh, we are not shooting on the dark however because of the fire any data that we have before becomes something that is not applicable anymore so we really need to accept that the science and the knowledge that we have in the models have to be uh, updated with the new uh, post wildfire mm, soil, uh, the you, you're talking about geological, hydro, hydrological uh, conditions that are completely different than how the models were made before the the the, the trees were burned. Fernando, how is your research group uh, addressing this? How are you getting out there and testing and maybe improving the science? Yeah, so. Um, in, in the research group, we believe in multidisciplinary approach. Uh, it's not only a, a one academic area that is going to solve this problem. So we're working from uh, both sensor technology, owner, and data uh, approach. So the sensor is... Uh, sensors are not new. We believe that if the owner designs the sensor and have control of changing the sensor they will they will be prone to use it and collect this data so we create this low-cost efficient wireless intelligence sensor that the owner understand a little more and also the owner can change the design it could be that you use a sensor look at the data and you want to change the configuration of the of the sensor maybe the the water the water elevation is not enough, we're adding a camera to the sensor. And they're used with the low-cost Arduino sensors. We like to ask the owner, in this case, Okio Wingate, and the leaders in flooding high water mark, what would they like to change? Which locations they want? So they are the ones who know the problem of these burned areas. 
and also we like the students to go out there and spend a lot of time on the field we are we are going frequently and they are in charge of their sensor networks these sensor networks are designed from 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 the bottom to the end to the server so the any component that fails they together identify the error and correct it hardware software could be the server could be the interpretation of the data it's all uh, um, low cost and low technology so we can we can use it fast Fernando, when your students get out there in the field, I mean, where are they going? What yeah. what kind of areas are they trying to measure data? So the, the group of students, they are composed typically of one or two leaders, either research staff or PhD students. They have more seniority. And they have a, a group of minions, if you like, of three or four undergraduates who are from mechanical, computer science, electrical, civil, um, we also have high school students helping on the team. So um, we have also high water mark interns working in high water mark. So this group of four or five identify three or four wireless sensor networks that, for example, they were talking about one sensor losing energy because it was overcast on that location specifically. They look at the data on their server and they identify, hey, we need to replace this battery and turn that on. The other problem was the hotspot. The hotspot resets because these are commercial hotspots that are basically working with the sun by themselves. And they identify these hotspots were not designed for this. So they are designing a little robot that turns the hotspot without you having to go there. So they go there and try to install the robot and see if that keeps the hotspot alive. So they have many uh, different areas, mechanical, computer science, the flooding, you know, they, they decide now we have to go to Las Vegas, New Mexico. Why? Because that's where the burn area is and that's where we're worried we're going to have the distraction. So they talk together and they uh, go and address the issue at the, at the spot. Yeah, thank you for the invitation to join the meeting today. I was amazed. I'm like, wow, these students are building <laughs> this technology, <laughs> building robots and things like that, and then taking them out in the field to measure these data. Yes, the, you saw you talk about the overheating problem. They do a little simulation. They're going to identify the voltage of the fan that they're going to put on their box. Uh, they, they, I think the, the most impressive part for me is that they feel comfortable sharing new ideas without the fear of being wrong. So they feel very supported to try something that may or may not be final. But they share something and they say, hey, this is what I'm trying to do. Let's go to the second step. So that gives them a lot of uh, trust and confidence and also not fear to being wrong, not fear to talk about something different. How do you create a research group where students feel the freedom and, and courage to experiment and try new things, you know, and build that confidence into them? Uh, I mean, maybe, maybe you need to combine different differences so differences could be on, on majors it could be in experience for example we have non-engineers in the group that are the same we don't treat them differently if we have a, a high schooler we don't treat the high schooler different we have someone that is more senior that comes without possibly the same academic background we believe there is uh, we like we like different we like different, we like different contribution. Um, also, we protect it. So we, uh, 
we encourage we encourage different contributions and we 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 know that we will learn from from different contributions so we prefer to not be intimidated for things that we don't know we prefer to 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 be open about the things that are new and and listen to to the to the different areas yeah yeah one of the things that really impressed me in the, the presentation was one of the university students that was helping out with a field trip where middle school and high school students were out yeah. there with sensors. And you had shared, you know, this is even a different angle, a different perspective that, that younger scientists would have. You know, I, I really respect it and admire that you guys are engaged a lot with not only college students, but also middle school and high school. Well, it also brings a, a meaning for the PhD students. Keep in mind the impact that this uh, fundamental research in uh, sensors or sensor networks or augmented reality uh, will have in the technical world is uh, one part of it. If you have impact in the in these young, bright, high schoolers and you give them something beyond what they thought they were going to do, they will contribute to your research group. They are ready to contribute. We don't, I mean, we don't think we're doing them a favor. I think they are doing us a favor. Yeah. And this is real world science that can get them excited, right? Sometimes oh, yeah. we think back to high school where it was just, you know, a lot of book book study and people can get intimidated. I've even seen 15, 16 year olds that say, I'm just not good at science. And it's maybe because they struggled with the book side, but then some of this hands-on side, they can say, wait, I'm actually very good at science. I just didn't realize it. So for the project that we do with uh, Lewis, uh, we identify that if you build a sensor with your hands, you will love data. You know, the mathematics become your your uh, passion. Now that you collect this data, you want to plot it, you want to analyze it only by connecting the cable. So we did this project and the survey from the high schoolers say connecting cable is making friends. Once you give them that 30 minutes on, on building the sensor, on the train, on the tramway, on the classroom, in 30 minutes, they believe if they connect the cables together, they're going to be discovering something with those cables of the data that they it becomes theirs. It's almost like they have more ownership, right? Like they actually help build this sensor that can be deployed, right? Yeah, and, and maybe related to the post-wildfire, we believe the, the design of the perfect sensor is the one that comes from the owner. So that sense of, I can design my sensor differently enables not only a community in New Mexico of, of you know, Okio Winge, but also the youth. You know, the youth, if you give them the, the control of their future and the power to create something that is their idea, we are missing that. that I think we're not doing it enough, actually. I don't think, I think we're just starting. We need to give them the, the ownership of their future by they build their sensor differently because they are smart. The concept is they went out and maybe deployed something that they built as opposed to giving them something someone else built and say, here, put this out in the, in the world. Uh, find the errors yourself and try to correct. You try to correct them because I know you can do it. That's what we want to tell them. You're partnering a lot with High Watermark. And yes. They, they have a very high number of workers that are from Native American background mm -hmm. as well, right? Yeah, so we are very lucky. Uh, we we are working with a leader in this technology environmental disaster, Phoebe Suina, 
and she's a firm believer of the supporting the youth, Native American youth, and she's uh, in the project that we have with with the Sioux and the NSF. They hire interns in high water mark that are probably uh, interested in contributing to their history, to their land, to their property, and they are self-motivated to come up with a new idea that is priceless. And when you give them uh, the power to design the sensor and put it in different locations, is their idea and is their contribution to their pueblo and to their tribe and to their ancestors. Another aspect of this collaboration with Highway or Mark is they um, it's a, a, sm a small business owned by Phoebe and she's really thinking for the future, the sustainability of this effort. We believe these initiatives can be self-sustained. So these youth, these uh, high schoolers or college students can start their sensor company and they can contribute in a sustainable way to other lands that are not as, as you know, New Mexico, we need help and we have a lot of uh, uh, short time now to prepare for this flooding, but they identify other, other uh, Native Americans, for example, in Alaska, where it's cold and it's difficult to move from side to side, and you're talking about very low temperatures where the sensors could help them too. So we're not only look, Okia Wingate and Highwater Mark are looking not only on the, on the New Mexico, central New Mexico, we're looking through entire state, and we want to have a sustainable approach for rural communities across the nation and maybe around the world. I could see universities playing a big part of that. I got started in my professional science work in Alaska, mm -hmm. and we, we were working with native Alaskan villages, and they would often send middle school, high school students to, to Fairbanks to come to our university to a workshop, and then they would take what they learned back to their village. You know, and we thought it, it's kind of what you're talking about here, about getting these university students or even high school students you know, from the villages to, to understand about the science and about technology but then to take that back out back to their villages yeah and, and you know the project actually says smart and connected communities is an initiative from the national science Foundi foundation more in the in in a traditional uh, world you think smart and connected communities would be very uh, signal and internet of things and as I decided to create a community center civil innovation challenge which is about the community is the center of the innovation so the, in our project, the, the native knowledge of flooding and fire informs the sensor. And we respect their thousands of years of being engineers, being programmers, being creating these algorithms of what is safe, what is not safe. And they design the sensor with their own knowledge that we may not even know, and we don't need to. You're building into this very deep history, right, for hundreds of years back of them knowing the landscape, the environment, the nature, and then using that knowledge to help with these projects. Yeah, and it's also a sovereignty issue. We've been working with cybersecurity with the Navy, and we are bringing this cybersecurity protection on the Lewis sensor network. So when we had the server and the access to data, it's only for the people who need to read about the most sacred component, which is water, because water is something that we want to respect, and it was given by the council members. They told us this is a sacred 
information and they want to keep it that way and we are ensuring that is cyber secure project for them. Yeah, that's very important and very culturally sensitive. Fernando, where does NSF come into this? Is this a new initiative with NSF is, or has this been going on for some time? This is very new. They identify the importance of having this smart and connected community center in a community. And they created two years ago the call for proposal. It's the first time that they've done it, 2020. Um, at the University of New Mexico, we put together a group uh, Sujan in the uh, Department of Geography, Science, Data, Mark Stone here on Civil, Yolanda Lin in, in Geography, and then we have Carrie Hushman in uh, Educational Psychology, and uh, High Water Mark, Phoebe Suina. We, we propose this uh, community center innovation project, civic innovation project, and it was extremely competitive, but I think because the the, the reality of, of the success is that we believe the community is designing the solution. And we are respecting the their ideas, the right idea, not the university idea. It has to be the community idea. The, the community may change their mind. We like that too. The community may identify different location. We follow them. Um, that's the NSF likes that. So on this type of project, the community is really driving the ship. They're just they're making the decisions of what needs to be done and prioritizing where where the science should go. That the community is the captain. The community is the decision maker, and we are here to enable opportunities that maybe make sense for them. And and we listen to what they want, and and they choose if they want to change them or transform them. And we are here for them. Wow, that, that's a very high-impact approach as opposed to just the university saying we should do this and then trying to go out into the world and, and push that, right? You're starting with the community first. They're helping guide the science, and then you're there to support them. Yeah, the university should be the 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 guide and also the the one in charge, but not in theory. Also, they have to... Um, be part of the of the of the criticism and the feedback and we believe this community is the one that tell us hey we want more sensors in a different location and when we do that they have a reason that we may not even know but at least we know is what they told us to do yeah you're aligning with where they want to go with that fernando how can people find you guys online or how can they how can people find your research group if yeah. they want to emulate you know kind of uh, model a model new work after what you're doing here sure so the research group uh, uh, i mean they can put my name fernando moro m-o-r-e-u smart management of infrastructure laboratory we have uh, a website at the university of new mexico it's, smilab.unm.edu. The project we created a project with the with the support of the NSF Civic Project is LewisNetwork.org, and um, they can do the search on Lewis L L E W I S Network. Dot org and they can they can take a look there. Have you seen interest come from other states yet with this? Or I know this is you're innovating really new things here. The civic project has more visibility that I noticed because now every time we go to conferences, they put University of New Mexico and they know the project is doing very well and they they want to hear more about the the stage where we're at. Especially one year, one million is a very intense against the clock effort. So the work that the students are doing and the partners supporting is uh, very, uh, we are in the, nine, in the month eight of the project 
and we already have all the sensors collecting this rain data that you saw today. Is, uh, we are against the clock, and we are uh, yeah, we're very glad to have the support from NSF to do this. Well, congratulations. I know you guys are up against some pretty big hazards here with drought, wildfire, and floods, sometimes all coming within a short amount of time. But I really admire that you guys are out there innovating science and engaging with uh, college students, even high school students, and uh, just getting out there to, to understand the science better and improve our forecasting. Thank you for coming on the podcast, and uh, I look forward to following the, uh, the work that you're doing and your research group as well into the future. Thank you. Glad to help. Dr. Moreau, thank you so much for sharing those insightful perspectives with us. I love what you said about students loving data and scientific analysis if they build and deploy their own sensors. That's a hands-on perspective that we can apply to every level of education, from grade school to students in high school, college, and graduate degree programs. On my visit to the University of New Mexico, I was also able to meet with Dr. Sue Jung, Associate Director at the Earth Data Analysis Center, or EDAC. He joined EDAC as a graduate student and became a part of the EDAC staff in 2017. Dr. Zung received his PhD in civil engineering from the University of New Mexico in 2017. He also has a master's degree in GIS science and construction management. His research focuses on leveraging GIS, remote sensing, and drone technologies for infrastructure management, and he has many peer-reviewed publications in this field. Dr. Jung is co-principal investigator on the NSF-funded project where students are building sensors. After the project meeting, we recorded the following interview together. I'm here at University of New Mexico. What a day. We saw a lot of creation and innovation. I'm with Sue Jung, a faculty here at University of New Mexico. I appreciate you taking time to come on the podcast. Glad to be here. Yeah. So, Sue Jung, you actually were a graduate from this department, and then you went on to get even uh, multiple master's degrees, right? Yes, I do. Um, yeah, um, I, I, did, um, I, I got my um, master's uh, degree of construction management in back to 2010, and then uh, went to Georgia Tech a really short time for one year and a half. And uh, I still decide, I, you know, I really like uh, the city of Albuquerque. You know, that's like my second hometown. Originally, I'm from Beijing, but I really like Albuquerque. So I decided to tra- transfer back to University of New Mexico and get my second master degree in geography. And then while I'm doing my second master degree, I decided to do my PhD. So I have two degrees running at the same time. It's, it's a lot of work. It is a lot of work. Well, and really a diverse background, both in engineering and in geography and geospatial science. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. Um, yeah, I um, I do enjoy the interdisciplinary, you know, engineering or, you know, science background. I um, I benefit a lot from it, you know, because I can solve problems not from geography side, but also can solve, you know, real real world problem in civil engineering. So, and, uh, you know, um, I think geospatial engineering is a term, you know, I really like to refer to. Um, people ask me, what do you do? I always tell people I'm a geospatial engineer because we are trying to use geospatial technologies to solve civil engineering problems. You know, I'm trying to build a program here at the University of New Mexico trying to train a new generation of engineers not only to use traditional civil, you know, engineering expertise or skills to solve problems, but also using uh, geospatial technologies. That's my ultimate goal, you know, to try to build a program like that. So for those students that have a background, say, in construction engineering or civil engineering, but Mm -hmm. they also have some geographic information systems, remote sensing, things like that, how do you feel like them also developing some geospatial skills can help them out? 
Well, you know, that's that's a really good question. Um, so oftentimes I have, you know, requests from like for, for state agencies like New Mexico Department of Transportation. They say like, oh, we needed to do some modeling, tra- you know, transportation modeling. We needed them to know GS because we know it's all locational based, right? So if any of the locational based services, we do need to uh, know their location using GS scales. So when they learn this GS scale remote sensing, um, they can help with the civil engineering in, in terms of construction, in terms of design, in terms of planning. Um, think about, you know, again, uh, an example is the transportation. It's geospatially um, spread out, right? So if you use a traditional, you know, point-based uh, trying to solve a, you know, transportation si- system issue, that won't, ha- that won't help you because, like I said, you know, transportation network is, uh, in nature, is spread out. So that's that's the geospatial or that's the you know geographic in 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 the nature. Yeah, I see. So if people can see more in the sense of of what was really happening over space, right? They could see maybe where transportation routes are going, and really with GIS, it's digital map layers, right? So your exactly. overline, may, maybe a floodplain or a land use things like that on top of your transportation and and demographic layers as well, right? Exactly. Yeah. So yeah, we have to think about this, um, you know. Um, not on the ground anymore. Like, uh, you know, traditionally civil engineering is a boost on the ground. It solves problems on the ground. But when we have geospatial engineering capabilities, you are going to solve the problem in the air. You're going to see the information in the air, you know, like, uh, you know, above the ground, right? So you see how the, um, you know, when we do uh, geospatial or we call it spatial analysis, you are going to see some patterns that you will never observe on the ground, right? So that's the spatial analysis. That's the power of spatial analysis. We can reveal a lot of the patterns that we will never observe in the past. And Sue, let's talk a little bit about this. You've done mm-hmm. some work with unmanned aerial vehicles, mm-hmm. drones, things like that, like different ways to actually get up above the land and, and record some imagery, right? Yes, exactly. Yeah, I, did, I do that. That's my, part of my research focus. You know, I really like using um, UAS as a platform to collect data because, I mean, when we're trying to solve a, an engineering problem or other problems, there are two, two folds or two sides of the problem-solving process. One is we need to have to collect data. We need that data to make decisions. We need to know what's going on. And then we analyze that data. So to me, these two parts work concurrently. You know, they, you know without one of them, we cannot solve the problem. But in the past, I think we focused more on um, the data analysis side, not really on the data collection side, because we have a lot of limitations. But because of advancement of technology, now because we can use the unmanned aircraft systems, we can collect data above the ground. And then um, my focus here is trying to using different type of sensors to collect the image. You know, we can use uh, digital cameras. We can get aerial photo. We call it. We could also put the sensor on a satellite platform that is a satellite image. We could also put a LiDAR, it's like a light ranging detection, like a onto aircraft or manned aircraft or unmanned aircraft, and then we can get LiDAR data. You know, we also have a sonar sensor, we also have radar sensor. There are all kinds of sensors. And my focus is optical sensors, like digital cameras or LiDAR sensors. And then we collect two-dimensional data and then our focus here at the University of New Mexico is trying to derive three-dimensional information from that overlapping two-dimensional aerial photos. And then we call it aerial triangulation or structure from motion. But the idea of that is trying to build three-dimensional information from two-dimensional image. 
and the two-dimensional image has to be overlapped. Then we can use aerial triangulation to try to get three-dimensional information. You know, people often think of floodplain maps as a two-dimensional thing, right? You have mm -hmm. that piece of paper or that digital map. But, for example, could we take those flood waters and actually make that a three-dimensional visualization to say, okay, what if there was five feet of water over the ground? What would that look like? Is that the kind of thing that we could maybe map out in, in 3D? Yes, absolutely. We could do that. And, uh, and it's happening, actually. Um, traditionally, GS is not as good as other software programs trying to visualize three-dimensional information. There are a lot of reasons. But part of the reason is uh, the, the idea behind the th uh, uh, GS is trying to take that spatial c context. You know, it's, it's, it's all like a big coverage or large coverage on the ground. But now, uh, recent years, in the past five years or three years, I would say, uh, we can see that GS is getting better and better visualizing three-dimensional information, is especially the thing you just mentioned, the flood plane modeling. We we can, you know, with really good GPU, you know, uh, graphic processing unit, we can see that three-dimensional information. Uh, Sue, so New Mexico has a lot of different hazards. We have tremendous drought, wildfires, floods, all these different things. How could you see, say, like drones or unmanned aerial vehicles collecting data that maybe help with some of the disaster response? Sure, yeah. Um, yeah, drone has a lot of, uh, you know, um, strength, although it also has limitations. But one of the strength is we in remote sensing, we call it a temporal resolution. It is literally the frequency, how frequently you can collect the data. So imagine you are collecting data with, um, you know, a manned aircraft. You have to take off. You have to need a maintenance for the aircraft. You know, you have limited time window to fly the, you know, fly. But with drone, you have really higher, much higher temporal resolution than the manned aircraft. Is that literally as long as the weather is allowed, all the weather conditions allowed, or, um, then you can fly. You know, of course, you have to get permission from Federal Aviation Administration. But once, uh, let's assume everything is being approved. You could collect the data as much as you want, basically. So the idea using the real power of using UAS or unmanned aircraft systems is that you collect a base map. You know, when 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 there are no disaster happen, you always just collecting. You know, depend on your uh, budget, you collect the base layer. We call it the time one layer. Immediately after a disaster happened, you collect the time two layer or the time two image, and then you have a pre-disaster image and a post-disaster image, and then you can do change detection. That's the real power of drone. And then, you know, I know building the base layer is taking time and time-consuming. You know, it, it is a, a labor-intensive process. But once, once we have that base layer and once a disaster happened, you collect the time two image, and then immediately you can do the change detection. So, Sue, you're saying you can get a drone up maybe right before a disaster and right after the disaster if you have the approval to fly, and all of a sudden you, you can just do a change detection map right there just right. from those two flights. Right, exactly. And mm -hmm. like you said, you can do it much more frequently than maybe waiting for satellite passes to come over your location. Right, right. The fastest satellite image, I know that they probably can re-image re the same area on a daily basis. You know, that's possible. But... With UAS or drones, we could do that literally every hour or every 30 minutes, depending on how frequently you want to go, right? Yeah. Yeah, I was out in the desert actually two nights ago, and there was a big rainstorm. It was amazing how quickly the floodwaters came over this area. You know, some of these hazards here, they're happening very quickly. Mm -hmm. So I think if you can get out and detect them and use drones or uh, UASs, you probably have a big advantage, right? 
Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So what, what about the work with the students and the, the, the different research teams here? What, are, what kind of work are you engaged in with the university students? Well, I, inter, I interact with uh, quite a few different groups of students. You know, we have students from civil engineering background. We have geography students. We also have like uh, Earth and Planet Science students. We also have students from uh, um, regional and uh, community planning. So I, you know, my student is all from different, you know, really diverse background. I really like that diverse, you know, team that everybody has their own expertise. And, uh, you know, geography, although I'm a faculty, I'm professor in geography, but, you know, geography in the nature, it is interdisciplinary, right? Geography do, does a lot of things, you know, like we do, um, we have physical geography, we have human geography, we have GS, we have remote sensing, now we have geospatial engineering. So it's, it's kind of like a melting pot that it can use any sort of expertise, you know, to solve the environmental issues, solve tra- infrastructure issues. It is really diverse. And working with the student here at UM is that one benefit is that our student is a lot of them from uh, minority, minority groups. Student like a uh, uh, Native American students. We also have you know Hispanic students here. Yeah, Sue. So sometimes in academia, I hear people say that we use a word called siloed. It's like everyone's in the same group. Like everyone is a geographer, or everyone is an engineer, or even like you said, culturally, everyone is the same race or the same gender. You know, right. when you mix, like you're saying, diversity on your team, uh, I would imagine sometimes you get a really good crossover where you have people coming from different backgrounds working together, right? Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. And and then um, I I really make make my team has like a um, kind of like a, a bigger brother or um, bigger sister thing going on is that you know having them to teach each other to learn that and then uh, like a family you know like my research group is really like a family. Could you explain big brother, big sister? So there may be like an older student that's partnered with a, a new student or something like that? Exactly like that. Yes. Um, so if we have a senior, like for undergrad student, if we have senior um, student, they become a, a big brother or big sister. And then for junior or, you know, uh, younger student coming here, they, they pass along their knowledge to them. And then that is a really also make our research group really sustainable. Uh, and then also make them feel like they are part of the family, not like they are not – basically, they are not doing the research work by themselves. They have helpers. They have assistance. They have guidance. They have resources, right? So – and then one of the things I also, you know, encourage them to do is trying to reach out to all the other research groups. You know, like exactly today – you were in the meeting, for example, I'm wor- working with also the, the, uh, Dr. Fernando Moreau. We have a lot of projects working together. And our research group, you know, they work also together. Yeah, that's so helpful when you know people f- outside of your research group that maybe know how to do computerized mapping or mathematics or w- whatever it is, right? Maybe a different part of technology. When you have these contacts and relationships, I think, in all these different groups, I right. think it can really make you a much stronger scientist. Absolutely, yes. So yeah. I appreciate you taking time to come on the podcast. How can people find out about your research group or the work that you're doing maybe on the web or, or just follow you online? Sure, yeah. Well, um, so I'm primarily associated with a um, research center here on campus called Earth uh, Data Analysis Center, EDAC. So if you go to edac.um.edu, you will find a lot of, uh, you know, product for portfolios we have been doing. We have been doing a lot of FEMA, you know, Federal Emergency Management Agency projects. We have been doing a lot of, uh, um, you know, um, you know, 
Department of Homeland Security projects. But primarily, all these projects focus on geospatial or GIS and remote sensing. We um, another way to find uh, more research about me. You, if you just uh, Google my name, um, Su Zhang, S U like S like Sierra, U like uniform, and then my last name is Zhang, Z H A N G U M. You will find more information about me. And all my publications in Google Scholar, you know, um, it's all there. Yeah, so I, I really want to follow your research group here. I was really impressed by the work you're doing, the engagement with students, and also that you're creating new science here. You know, there are a lot of groups, I think, that sometimes kind of just, you know, recirculate other people's work. You're, you're really creating and innovating your own science right here and then, you know, getting this out to the residents of your state to really help them. So I was really impressed by what I saw, and I'm excited to follow you guys in the future. Thank you very much. Thank Thank you for coming on the podcast. My pleasure. Dr. Jung, thank you so much for taking time to come on the GeoTrek podcast. We learned a lot from you, like the practical applications of combining engineering with geospatial science. I wanted to touch on some specific language used to describe geospatial science. Geospatial is a common word used to describe technology that includes mapping and spatial analysis. Another related term is the acronym GIS. This field became popular in the 1990s and originally stood for Geographic Information Systems. In recent years, many people define GIS as Geographic Information Science. Others talk about Geographic Information Technology. These terms are used to describe digital mapping programs that are basically smart maps. When you pull up a map on your smartphone and you see an info box pop up when you click on a building, That's GIS behind the scenes putting information on that map. If you're interested to study GIS or pursue a degree in it, check out the Department of Geography in your local university or college. Remote sensing is the science of collecting and interpreting scientific data from a distance. Dr. Jung referred to drones, unmanned aerial sensors, and satellites for data collection. These all fit into the field of remote sensing. Remotely sensed data, such as drone or satellite imagery, can then be brought into GIS for analysis. I wanted to add a comment about what Dr. Jung said about his research group operating like a family with older students mentoring younger ones. This ties in very closely with perspectives shared by Fernando Moreau. An important insight for our young scientists considering undergraduate or graduate studies, this type of internal mentorship will take you to the next level in your academic experience. When you are mentored by an older student, you get a lot of help and perspective and sometimes access to a person that may have more time and availability than many professors. When you are the older student mentoring, it helps you learn and teach the science better and provides encouragement about how far you've come. Not all academic departments have such healthy perspectives. As a prospective student, take time to ask about mentorship within academic programs and feel free to reach out to faculty, staff, and students with questions about this concept. It really will transform your academic experience. Before we close out this episode, I wanted to give a shout out to Phoebe Sweena and High Watermark Consulting. Fernando Moreau mentioned them a few times. High Watermark is a 100% Native American woman-owned environmental consulting company with a specialty in water resources. Owner Phoebe Sweena has 20 years of experience providing environmental and water resources engineering, science, planning, and management to New Mexico communities, ranging from Pueblos to local, state, and federal agencies, in addition to private industry. The focus of High Watermark has been flood disaster and emergency 
emergency response, including flood hazard mitigation planning, stormwater management, and watershed rehabilitation for the protection of both cultural and natural resources in their client communities. They work extensively with the Native American population and are doing very innovative work. I was able to touch base with Phoebe Sweena multiple times by phone, usually while she was driving or on conference calls. She's super busy and could not do an interview, but I really appreciate the time that she took. She always got back to me or made some time to give me some perspectives and to help me out with information about the great work they're doing. Wow, what an episode. I feel like I'm just catching my breath. This is one of my favorite episodes we've ever recorded because there's so much hope and encouragement when we take the steps to train our students from grade school to graduate school to create and innovate so we can do great science and better understand the world around us. Special thanks to our GeoTrek production team for their great work on these episodes. Jeremiah Long is behind the scenes making the audio magic happen, and we have an excellent team involved in social media, publicity, and marketing of this content, including Seneth Baker, Ashley Anderson, Amy Wilkins, Helen Sabado, and Chris Cook. I'm your podcast host, Dr. Hal Needham, and I'll catch you on the next episode of the GeoTrek podcast when we come back to the land of enchantment for one last time in our three-part series on New Mexico. We'll catch you on the next episode. Hey everyone, this is Dr. Hal. Thank you so much for listening to the GeoTrek podcast. If you're wondering how we come up with such interesting topics each week, we rely on an amazing global community to help direct our scientific fieldwork, articles, and podcasts. If you have an idea for a topic or can connect us to an outstanding future podcast guest, please reach out to us on our website at geo-trek.com or on our Facebook group called GeoTrek the Community. On behalf of our GeoTrek production team, this is Dr. Hal. I'll catch you on the next episode of the GeoTrek podcast.